0: Dialogue. My name is Kathy G. Johnson, and I'm a cartoonist, scholar, and
1: educator. And my name is E. Jackson, and I'm a cartoonist and scholar and educator. Yeah. Um, on drawing a dialogue, we put comics into historical and educational
0: contexts. So today we are going to talk about the
1: cartoonist, uh, Jackie Orms. Yeah, who was inducted into the Eisner's Hall of Fame this past year. Um, in July. Yeah, right. Very recently. Yeah. Um, so Jackie Orms was the first African-American woman cartoonist. She worked over a span of 28 years and created four strips, uh, Torchy Brown and Dixie de Harlem, Candy, Patty Joe and Ginger, and Torchy Brown Heartbeats, and was published in uh, the Pittsburgh Courier and the Chicago Defender. So the way we're going to structure this
0: episode is... Um, I'm going to sort of give a timeline of Jackie Orms's life and also things that were happening in the United States around the same period mm-hmm. um, because her life really spans like this, this century of really eventful moments in American history. Um, yeah. She was part of the Civil Rights Movement. She was born right before the Harlem Renaissance. I mean, all these things that are like the context for her life. And then E is going to bring in other sources and add depth to her life. Yeah. So let's get started. Yes. Let's get started. So Jackie Orms was born in 1911. There's a couple of things I want to talk about before that, though. Um, So 1865 is when slavery in America ends with the 13th Amendment. Mm -hmm. And so... Me and E just like hurriedly tried to look up information about her parents specifically because she really was born about 50 years after slavery ended. Mm-hmm. And as an African-American person, um, she likely was related to enslaved peoples. Mm-hmm. But there's just a few things that we know about her parents. Did you want to tell us about
1: them? Yeah. So she was born, like uh, Kathy said, um, in 1911 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Her father, uh, William Winfield Jackson, was, was the owner of a printing business and was the proprietor of a movie theater. And her mother, Mary Brown Jackson, uh, was a homemaker. Uh, so worked, you know, at home. Um, her father died in 1917 when she was six from a, um, motor vehicle accident. Um, and one of my sources says that after that point, her and her older sister lived with their grandmother while her mother worked as a live and maid. And then a different source I say have Mm. says aunt and uncle instead of grandmother, um, so there's some one of the things that happens that I've noticed is that some, there's like some conflicting dates uh, and some conflicting like details that it seems aren't like concretely known, which happens sometimes with historical figures where a lot a lot of the the like smaller details are like they it, it, like it's wibbly. What's the actual um, what should we talk happened? about yeah. the main <laughs> book? That we used to research her life. Yeah, so there there is a lot of literature on Orms, but in terms of actual like books, there's really only um, Nancy Goldstein's book, which is the one that we were working with. Nancy Goldstein's "Jackie Orms: The First African American Cartoonist," um, that was published by University of Michigan Press in 2008. Nan- uh, Nancy Goldstein is white, um, as are we. As are we. And we felt it was important to kind of be upfront about that.
0: It, I mean, it changes. Um, it's a biased opinion that this author was coming mm-hmm. from. I mean, you just have to take into account that some people might have blind spots for certain aspects of yeah. stuff. I mean, that's just what life is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But you did find a couple of black authors who wrote about Jackie as mm-hmm. well, right?
1: Yeah, and... Um, I mean, she was published in a lot of black newspapers, so there's a lot of, like, black cultural literature that focuses on her. Awesome. Um, It's just books, like, specific, like, academic tones. Where it's a little bit, uh, Mm -hmm. you know. Which is an interesting, I guess, uh, you know, who gets written about in academia. Absolutely. And that's why, like, her
0: childhood is, like, you know... Just like you were saying, it's hard to find specific evidence of her childhood, and a lot of that might be yeah. because she was a Black woman and it wasn't recorded until 2008, um, Yeah, even though she was basically a celebrity in her lifetime. <laughs> so again, she was born in 1911. I wanted to throw back just a couple of years that 1907 is when The Courier begins, which is a Black newspaper. So I mean, her lifetime, and even her father ran a printing press, right? So her... Life yeah. is very, very tied to newspapers, specifically black newspapers and black presses.
1: Yeah, Um. she actually, before she was, and this is, um, I'm citing from an article on New York Amsterdam News, uh, Meet Jackie Orms and Torchy Brown by Jasmine K. Williams. She actually was writing for the Pittsburgh Courier before she was out of high school. Oh, wow. Yeah. Before she was out of high school, her articles were appearing in the Pittsburgh Courier, which hired her as a cub reporter when she graduated. So, like, very young, very early, getting involved in, like, the newspaper circuit. And she worked as a reporter as as well as a cartoonist.
0: So she would have graduated around nineteen thirty. Um, so if yeah. she started in high school, it would have been late 20s. Yeah. I have a couple more um, sort of dates for what's happening in the United States while she's in high school. Yes. Um. So from 1916 to 1930 is the first gr- great migration. Mm-hmm. And so that is going to be um, African-Americans from the South moving north for things like opportunity. Um. There's a lot more we could get in on the history of that, but I just... Wanted to say that there's sort of like a lot of this like movement mm-hmm. during her childhood and sort of excitement, right? So, also mm-hmm. was happening in 1924 to 1929 is the Harlem Renaissance. Um, she would have been a child and in high school during this time period, so she just missed it. But I feel like the Harlem Renaissance, um, which was The rebirth of African-American arts, which was an intellectual, social, and artistic movement that took place in Harlem in New York. So it was like music, fashion, writing, artwork, all that stuff, like an intellectual movement. Mm -hmm. I feel like that really informed her.
1: Yeah, actually, um, uh, Goldstein writes that a sizable African-American population lived in, so she was born in Pittsburgh, but she lived in a suburban area called um, Monongahillen. Mm -hmm. which I'm sure I'm butchering, but um, and there was a sizable African-American population that lived there in the 1910s and 20s. Um, Pittsburgh and its outlying parts had been a destination um, for tens of thousands of Blacks migrating from the South to work in jobs created by the burgeoning steel and aluminum industries. So that's part of that great migration movement that Kathy's talking about. Pittsburgh was one of the spots for that. And other ethnic groups came also, including the Italians, Polish, Irish, creating the area's mix of language, culture, ethnic restaurants, and shops. Um, So this is like a little suburban area that's actually like pretty uh diverse Mm -hmm. for the time
0: so uh, almost right when she graduates high school um 1929 Mm -hmm.
1: is when the great depression begins Mm -hmm. right so she marries her husband earl orms in 36
0: okay so in the 1930s they moved to salem ohio to live with her husband earl's family likely Mm -hmm. because of the great depression yeah but I remember in the reading, in the Goldstein reading, their household was really happy, like there was a lot of people, they they never um really they were obviously affected by the great depression but they didn't um suffer a lot of poverty from what my understanding like it was a very well-off family the Ormses.
1: Yeah, the Ormses were fairly I I remember I don't have the exact page but I know there was a, a Goldstein says like the was quoting one of the sisters and was like the Orms men were never out of work. So Yeah, yeah, um, I remember that too.
0: I mean I think it's important to point out as she is known as the first African American cartoonist in America but like mm-hmm. I think it's important to point out that she is from like affluence in some manner, right? Mhm. I don't I th- I think that's an important aspect to uh, point out about this historical figure. I agree. So 1937 is when Orms starts her first cartoon? Is this her first cartoon or is this her first like running
1: series? Do you know she was probably drawing before this point? She did drawings for her school yearbook. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure I'm sure she was cartooning, but this was her first like published cartoon.
0: Mm-hmm. So um, she started Torchy Brown in Dixie, Harlem. I'm going to let E talk about that in just a second. Yes. But I also want to mention 1935, like what's happening Right. Mm -hmm. John Edgar Hoover founds the FBI. So he became the director of the Bureau investigation in like the 20s. But he makes it the federal Bureau investigation. Later on in her life, he actually the FBI investigates Jackie Orms. So I wanted to Mm -hmm. throw out there that the FBI is like founded just within a few years of when she starts her cartooning career.
1: Yes. Yeah. So. Torchy Brown uh, in Dixie to Harlem is her first uh, published comic strip. It's it runs in um, The Courier. Um, We haven't ever talked really about like comic strip history. Mm -hmm. So I actually have like a good quote that sort of gives some context for like the general state of comics and like Sunday funny type things. Um, this is from Shuh, Ain't Nothing To It, The Dynamics of Success in Jackie Orm's Torchy Brown, uh, by Edward Brunner in the Multi-Ethnic Literature of the United States Journal, um, from 2007, so a year before Goldstein's book came out. A newspaper in the first half of the 20th century that neglected its comic strips endangered its future. Only the New York Times and the Boston Evening's transcript ventured out onto the mark- marketplace without the benefit of funny pages. To meet this nationwide demand, corporate syndicates had stood ready since the 1920s to supply comic strips in batches pre-printed for newspaper publishing. These features for syndication were chosen for wide appeal, so even material aimed at the adult end of the comic strip audience was supposed to skirt controversy yet what was deemed non-controversial by king features the syndicating arm of the mighty hearst empire um hearst referring to um william randolph hearst hearst and pulitzer were like the two important figures that like sort of started weekly publishing and also cartoon like strips um and i can talk more about that but if needed but um so uh syndicating arm of the mighty hearst empire was almost certain to affront readers of the weekly papers published by and for african-americans king features packaged four-page ready-to-print units that offered a variety of strips in 18 different combinations out of the 18 eight included barney google a strip whose popularity rested in part on google's sidekick a minstrelized caricature of an african-american jockey A black reader might have testily observed that the jockey bore a derogatory nickname, Sunshine, while the name of the horse he spurred to victory celebrated the animal's skill at the running, Sparkplug. Finding virtually all syndicate-ready prints untenable, black newspapers necessarily developed their own strips by working with in-house artists and writer teams or negotiating short-term contracts with freelancers. So that's, like where orms was she worked on contract for these newspapers because they wouldn't black newspapers generally didn't run the the widely syndicated strips that were uh, very like derogatory
0: yeah so she was working for at this time 1937 she had already been working for newspapers like she's very much a reporter yeah right yeah she's very politically engaged knows the current events and she starts to draw this comic but she's also working specifically for she only works for black newspapers. Mm-hmm. And I think we can probably get into this a little bit later on but like so white na- newspapers that came out daily um weren't covering African American issues, right? Mm-hmm. So the Black Press started and that was like usually on Saturdays, so it was just weekly. Mm-hmm. And this also affected the way that comics um, were produced, right? So the daily strips that were mostly white artists for mm-hmm. the daily newspapers, they ended up creating teams because you had to create a new strip every day. But they actually, Jackie Orms and other black cartoonists working in the black press, all their stuff is almost 100% authored by them, right? They didn't yeah. have a team of people helping them, um, which I think is really interesting.
1: Yeah, no, that is really interesting, um, like, considering just, like, different modes of production. And I th- I think Orms, in interviews, talked about she tried to work with writers and just didn't like what oh, they yeah. wrote.
0: <laughs> yeah, she tried to uh, – well, she specifically said, like, something like she wanted to pay for punchlines, but they were bad. Yeah. <laughs> so she wrote her own. And she has another uh, quote that she 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 said about Torchy Brown t- in Dixie to Harlem. Mm-hmm. Um, she says that, I had never been to Dixie, but I worked in a newspaper office and I read everything that was in the paper. Mm-hmm. It was a whole lot about struggles, segregation.
1: Yeah. So that was part of what inspired her to make this comic. Yeah, so she's doing this political reporting and then it's influencing her cartoons.
0: And then she quits The Courier in 1938. She's yes. only drawing Torchy Brown to in Dixie to Harlem. Um, I have a year. How long? Twelve was, months. It was less than that. Twelve months. It was a perfect it was a, year. It was so a perfect year. It, it maybe was like a year contract. Yeah. right? that's like the theory. Yeah,
1: I also think it's important. Um, so in. Uh, uh, her and uh, her husband are married in the thirties. Um, they have a daughter, Jacqueline, who dies of, like when she's around three years old. And then, Torchy Brown and Dixie to Harlem starts the year after that, so in thirty seven. Mm. And they never had another child, right? Yeah, they never had another child. There's a lot of a lot of the analysis I found in the Goldstein book mentions this and a couple others uh, that the cartoons are almost like a surrogate for her which feels like a, a editorializing in a strange way to me feels a little sexist yeah like goldstein says uh, specifically that like some family members worried that the like the little girl character in patty joe and ginger uh was a kind of substitute for jacqueline and that the motivation for creating the character might not be emotionally healthy but the family's feels were apparently unfounded so i so i don't know like i don't know who who in the family that goldstein was talking to that like was expressing that, or like, you know what I mean? Um, but I do think
0: <laughs> the fact that Jackie was on her way to be a housewife and a home and a um, mother, yeah. a stay at home mother. I mean, especially in this era, right? Even before the 40s. And then she just sticks with the newspaper and starts drawing. Yeah. Um, I think she uh, starts to pursue a career. And not that that has to be. A choice, mm-hmm. but especially for a woman of this time period, I don't think it's um not reasonable to mention that um she decided to not have uh, another child yeah. after the death of her child.
1: So, Torchy, a uh, Torchy Brown and Dixie to Harlem, um, is about Torchy Brown, a young woman who leaves the South and moves to Harlem and gets involved in the Cotton Club, which was a re- relatively well known, like important. Uh, club, uh, jazz club during the Harlem Renaissance. And uh, Kathy brought up the idea of the Great Migration uh, that like was happening. And actually, uh, there's some good analysis of Torchy Brown as a Great Migration narrative. So this is from Sha Ain't Nothing to It Again, the Edward Brunner uh, essay. And uh, he writes, From 1937 to 1938, Orms sketched adventures of a young woman there, once autobiographical and fantastic, presenting events from a distinctly female point of view, and he goes on to explain, valuing interpersonal relationships, affirming an aesthetic taste in fashion, and using ingenuity and persistence to overcome traditional barriers to recognition. Even as Orms outlined in her heroine's progress from Dixie to Harlem, a version of a Great Migration narrative, she also disputed key elements in that narrative, depicting the black urban north as an environment of both danger and opportunity. The volatility of that northern setting was both acknowledged and confronted in Orms' decision to present her heroine as aspiring to and attaining a position as a performer in the Cotton Club. By exploring the lifestyle of an entertainer in a near mythic setting, Orms celebrated and amplified the success of African Americans who had achieved wide respect for their skill as hard-working and talented professionals. Uh, in several episodes, moreover, Orms provocatively conflated the artistry of improvisation and swing music and tap dance with the form of her own common strip. Orms in the process left a record of a moment in the evolution of American jazz that also aligned the comic strip as a mass culture form with another popular art. Um, So I thought I think like it's important to put this in the context of like this is a this is sort of a great migration narrative. It's about a a young girl from Dixie (laughs) deciding to go up north to become a performer uh, during the Harlem Renaissance. Um, And there's this one particular strip that gets a lot of traction, that gets written about a lot. The strip from um, September 14th, 1937 uh, with Torchy Brown, which is the one where she actually decides to run away um, and go to Harlem. The strip shows her coming up and she sees the signs on the train that say colored this direction and white this direction. And her, the character, uh, Torchy Speech Trouble says, I'll just pretend I can't read very well. And she goes and sits in the whites only section um, mm-hmm. and befriends a foreign guest. So when a porter comes to send her to the correct session, the guest says, oh, no, no, she's my friend. <laughs> and lets her stay. Uh, and it's really compelling and interesting because, um, and so I'm co- quoting again from the Edward Brunner article, um, by stepping outside established boundaries that establish strict differentiation, she li- enters a liminal world rife with negotiations and where no signal that passes between men and women is simple. Spotted immediately by a black porter, she is directed with a silent gesture back to what would be her proper place. But the implicit uh, claim that the porter makes upon her, presuming some expression of future gratitude for his silence, is interrupted and redirected by an Italian American traveler who, by boldly hailing her and inviting her to sit with him, extends to her the powerful cloak of the identity of a foreigner. This little lady is my very good friend. I insist you must run around now, Mr. Conductor. Now identified as a foreign exotic, she gains access to the amenities of the quote, white day coach. And the last panel, when Torchy's rescue is complete, she takes a generous bite out of the fruit her new friend offers her, no doubt an apple. So, just like, I wanted to highlight that strip because she's doing like really high level, like mm-hmm. unique work that no one, like no other cartoonist, like there's no one like, I mean, there are other, there are other black cartoonists at this time, men, um, that are also sort of radical in their presentations. But still, like, you know what I mean? Like, it's just very like, unique
0: mm-hmm.
1: and like 37 <laughs> like so in 1938 Orms quits drawing for the courier
0: mm-hmm. um and then in 1939 the great depression ends so there are a little bit more economic opportunities and by 1942 uh, her and her husband moved to Chicago to be a part of more culture, my guess is. But also in 1942, the U.S. enters World War II, right? Yeah. And so African-Americans are then invited to join the U.S. Navy. And Orms uh, covers segregation in the Navy for her newspaper column. So she's really politically engaged and like really well informed on what's happening. She's also moving, I think at this time, so I talked about the first Great Migration, and then they sort of talk about a second Great Migration that happens after the first, and that's people moving west.
1: Yeah, so, but it became obvious to Jackie, and this is from Goldstein's book, but it became obvious Mm -hmm. to Jackie and Earl in 1942 that their own great expectations must be satisfied elsewhere and in a big city. Jackie's sister Dolores lived at the time in Chicago where she was pursuing a singing career, and had described in letters the expanding job opportunities and vitality of life she found there. Jackie had begun to feel stifled in Salem, so she was still living in Salem at that time. Um hmm. and although, quote, Earl wanted to be near his family to feel secure, Jackie recalled years later, I needed Chicago. I talked him into it. <laughs> Which is such
0: I love it. She's so great. Um so now they're in Chicago, and in the mid to late 40s, uh, it was black press's heyday, mm-hmm. right? So I wanted to talk about, during these years, African Americans looked for news about their communities, found it mainly in a weekly, Saturday newspapers. Uh, today's attempts to provide Inclusive newspaper coverage and well-stocked Black Studies sections in libraries were yet to materialize in America. Mm. By the mid 1940s, the four largest Black newspapers in the United States were the Pittsburgh Courier, the Chicago Defender, the Afro-American, which is headquartered in Baltimore, and the New York Amsterdam Times. Uh, e just talked about this. That w- that one was in Harlem. Mm-hmm. Uh, Because it mainly consisted of weeklies, the black press did not mainly concern itself with providing up to date news. That job fell to daily newspapers and announcements on the radio. Shouldering the burden of standing for something In a world largely invested in preserving the status quo Black newspapers often adopted a tone of advocacy And even militancy Mm -hmm. If, for instance, the mainstream press Reported gains for U.S. troops in Europe during World War II The black press focused attention on racial discrimination in the military When the dailies mentioned Thurgood Marshall In the general news The black press spotlighted his achievements as NAACP leader And later his pioneering status as the first African-American Supreme Court justice, which I'll mention later. Mm -hmm. Indeed, newspapers were one of the only weapons available in the time in which African-Americans could fight racial prejudice and injustice. Yeah. To go on. Cartoons added wit and humor to the colorful mix of the black press in the middle of the 20th century. But beyond their entertainment value, comics often carried messages of protest, satirizing unjust laws and social norms in ways that at times would have been risky for writers to take on in print. A lot like what E.U. had just talked about in Torchy Brown. Mm -hmm. Although publishers and editors may have been occasionally intimidated into reigning in their writers and columnists, satirical cartoonists like Jackie Orms and Oliver Harrington carried on unbridled. One can suppose that editors saw these cartoons as a clever way to continue to criticize unjust and unfair laws and social policies while dodging the government's oversight.
1: Mm -hmm. So after Torchy Brown and Dixie to Harlem, there's a seven year break where she's doing political work and reporting and not cartooning. So the first comic that she does seven years after Torchy Brown is Candy uh, for the Chicago Defender. It only ran for four months. But I think there's this really but I, I wanted to uh, Langston Hughes, who had a column in The Defender also uh, co- called Colored and Colorful, wrote about her. If I was marooned on a desert island, I would miss Jackie Orms's cute drawings, um, <laughs> which one I love. And two, I think shows really, like, the cultural, like, la- the cultural impact of, like, who was reading her work, like, what circles were writing about her work. Um, Langston Hughes, of course, being uh, relatively famous. He's a poet from the Harlem Renaissance. Yeah. Can you tell me what Candy was? Yes. So Candy was a single panel comic about a maid. Um, Candy was a, this is a quoting from Goldstein. Um, Candy was a subversive housemaid who took amusing verbal jabs at wartime black marketeers, hoarders, and hypocrites as personified by the detested lady of the house. Candy establishes her moral superiority over madam that in in panels that invite readers to reflect on the upside down order of things. Although Orms never showed Candy's employer in person or commented on her color, the paper's ongoing editorials attacking low wages of black domestics and white household and establishments suggested she was white. Reminders of black servitude in white households permeated American culture as exemplified in this poem by Count T. Cullen that was well known at the time. Uh, and I'm going to read the poem cuz I think it's important. Um in a short. The name of the poem is For a Lady I Know and it's She even thinks that up in heaven her class lies latent snores while poor black cherubs rise at 7 to do celestial chores. So, um, and there's no other characters that ever show up in the Candy strip. It's always just Candy making commentary.
0: <laughs> and Candy ran for four months. Yes. Only four months. And then she moved from the Defender back to the Courier. Yes. Possibly because she actually never got paid for drawing Candy. Yeah, she said that in
1: interviews.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, she was getting paid cause she also, uh, she wrote the social world and she wrote other newspaper columns, yeah. um, for the defender, but she was drawing candy without compensation. Yeah. And then after candy, um, she got the fashion world's attention because in candy, the, um, the character is wearing her employer's clothes mm-hmm. a lot. And so, uh, Orms got the fashion world's attention. She started to make more commercial art she worked for models um, she worked for style shows and fashion design competitions and so she actually made a lot of clothing for theater Mm -hmm. as well so she started to do all this clothing design work after doing candy which i just think is wonderful and then in still in 1945 so she goes back to the courier she starts to work on patty joe and ginger right oh before we start patty joe and ginger days before the strip starts the U.S. drops two atomic bombs on Japan, mm-hmm. which uh, sort of essentially ends World War II. Right. Um.
1: Did you want to talk about pinup art history? Um, I think it's worth just to say... We could just use this to talk about how she draws black women differently
0: than... Yeah, so like in Candy, it's definitely informed by pinup art and fashion, right? Mm-hmm. And so this was also something that was happening in world war ii yes and part of um goldstein's book she talks about how black gis couldn't hang up pinup art mm-hmm. of white women right so part of jackie orms's art was to sort of make like these like sexy black women that black gis felt safe to hang up mm-hmm. <laughs> did you want to talk more about her style
1: yeah um so she's she's very interesting because she's sort of pulling on like this very high fashion pinup style um she models a lot of the characters after herself she talks
0: about how she was like only five feet one inch so she never got to be a model Mm -hmm. but she loved modeling yeah fashion
1: yeah really the the thing i wanted to talk about i guess is that um this is from sha ain't nothing to it again um and Brunner is analyzing a specific holiday strip but i think this sort of maps onto everything that like sort of like works with like most of what she did the very look of Orms strip and the idea of a holiday party in which strangers mingle confirm the urbanity associated with the Pittsburgh courier a paper notorious for its tabloid news tales its sensational headlines and its photos with their frank appreciation of the female body Maxine Leed-Craigs has spoken in defense of such imagery, reminding us that the photographs of glamorous and beautiful black women published by the black press communicated something simple. Black women are beautiful, too. An African-American woman who is simply showcased as pretty made an effective counterclaim to caricatures of black women as humorously or monstrously ugly. So and Goldstein Mm. talks about this, too, um, that at the time, most depictions of black women fell into the like you know like um minstrel tropes or like were exaggerated or distorted and you know treated as like monstrous or inhuman we talk about this in a previous episode um it was
0: episode 12 yes titled history of racism physiognomy and cartooning but Orms was sort of working against this
1: yeah so it's easy to look at it i think contemporarily and be like oh this is like pin up and not like you know it, it that there is a truth to that when all the other images are of black women as ugly <laughs> um just drawing <laughs> a black woman just drawing black women is pretty is a very subversive thing
0: yeah and it's something she did her whole life her whole cartooning career yes. i mean it's a big aspect of patty joe and ginger
1: Yeah. So this is uh, I I just have a good quote from an article um, by Uchenna Ide from the Weekly Challenger in 2017. Her work was unique and wholly unprecedented. Not only were her lead characters female, they were strong, elegant, intelligent, urbane, opinionated and witty and often leading extremely glamorous and cultured lives it has been said that they are very much like the artist herself they challenge, <laughs> they challenged the derogatory caricatures of black people and especially black women which usually appeared in comics at that time so yeah just she was doing a thing that not many that no, n- hardly anyone in comics especially with regards to how black women were depicted was doing mm-hmm. and it's it's interesting that and it's like great that i think it's like very cool that it got her into fashion like i think that's actually like a very Fashion is one of those fields that gets sort of looked down upon as being, like, feminine. But it's important, I think, for a black woman to have been... Oh,
0: absolutely. ...successful for sure. in
1: fashion. Yeah.
0: All these themes sort of continue on through all of her strips. Mm-hmm. Um, so even though it had a lot to do with equity during World War II. And then so, like I said, days after the atomic bombs were dropped by the United States on Japan. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, I think it's just... I think I'm what I'm getting hung up on... Is This is like a very American look, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we, we say that all the time. We are North American, but it's just such an American look to be like, well, um, World War II ended, you know? <laughs> yeah. when, I mean, the dropping of the bombs still has implications today. Right. It's the only time atomic bomb has ever been used Mm -hmm. on another country. And I just I just um, really, really hesitate to be flippant. It's just not what we're talking about right now.
1: Yeah. Um, (laughs) That's like a um, a very important and in-depth history that does not necessarily overlap. But I agree that it's important for us to at least know, like, what's happening in the world.
0: Yeah. Um and then she starts doing Patty Joe and Ginger. Um so mm-hmm. Patty Joe and Ginger ran for 11 years in the courier. It was her longest comic creation. Mm-hmm. It was never syndicated, so like like e talked about syndication was sort of a big thing, yeah. but it was really something that was happening with the daily newspapers and less Uh, these weekly black newspapers, but The Courier did have wide distribution and ran in 14 different
1: cities. Mm -hmm. So it was at least it was read by like millions of people. Yeah, I have actually exact numbers on that. It's interesting because a lot of the articles do use that word syndicated, which is technically inaccurate. It was just it ran in all like 14 editions of the same paper. So it was read coast to coast. And there is a 1947 interview that Goldstein quotes that Orms did um, that was, uh, she says, situating her work in the larger media world. She told the interviewer, women cartoonists are not so rare as you think. Other women cartoonists of the time included Dale Mezik, whose Brenda Starr reporter appeared in the Chicago Tribute, and Mary Petty, a cartoonist for The New Yorker. The interview goes on to report that as the panel continued its appearance, the audience grew and now reached a total of 300,000 readers through The Courier which found in a recent survey that Patty, Joe, and Ginger tops all its other features in reader popularity. Syndication brings the total to one million readers. So in 1947, this interview does use the word syndication to refer to it being published in these different editions of The Courier.
0: Right. And then so Goldstein sort of goes on that there were different editions because like it would have this broader framework of the courier, but then it would also have, it would swap out stories for like more local yeah.
1: stories. It it was the same paper. It was just a paper that had branches in different locations and did local yeah. like to that location.
0: And I think it's okay making it a little bit messy because I yeah. think that's what, I mean, history isn't neat. Right. And I think it's good to talk about it like this.
1: I just think it's like interesting the way that like, some sources you syndicated some sources like technically it's not, but basically I mean it functioned. It was as close as I think a black cartoonist got to at that time.
0: And I think it is in of what was special about black newspapers at this time, too. Yeah, exactly. So right before this, Colton Y observed in his 1947 book called The Comics Mm -hmm. that at this time in the United States, a lot of the comics were about jokes and laughing. 1946. Mm -hmm. So it's like sort of what the United States wanted after World War II and all these G.I.s are returning home. Mm -hmm. They wanted to laugh. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> so that's what Jackie was making comics in during this time period, and
1: it's I think there's like an interesting observation that Goldstein makes um, that Patty Joe and Ginger doesn't get as much written about it. Torchy Brown in Dixie to Harlem, and then the later Torchy Brown heartbeats uh, have a lot of the focus of people's analysis. Mm. I think uh, Goldstein posits like precisely because of the fact that it comes across as like more lighthearted and like less political. But she says, in truth, the very thing that made Patty Joe and Ginger compelling, the depiction of a precocious and witty little girl and her attractive big sister, may have disguised the cartoon's polemic commentary, misleading readers into thinking that this was children's fair or somehow frivolous in content. Readers would not always find heart hitting political satire in the cartoon, many gags focused on Patty Joe ribbing Ginger about her appearance and clothing. On one level, jokes such as these could be read as light humor. But at the same time, they gave Orms the opportunity to make observations about significant topics like class, consumerism, and racial uplift. So I think that's like an interesting analysis of like, this doesn't seem as politically hard hitting as her Torchy and her candy Strips, but you can still see that that she's still very much concerned with like issues of like unions and class and very and like consumerism and racism and like all the same stuff. Basically,
0: did her creating Patty Joe it overlapped with her next? Strip, Torchy,
1: and Heartbeats, right? Torchy and Heartbeats was 1950,
0: right? And if Patty Joe started it for ran for 11 years and started in 1945, Mm -hmm. that means they overlapped a little bit. 1956 is when um, Patty Joe and Ginger ended. Yeah. Yes. Ooh, that's those dates. These dates, it's really difficult to find very concrete dates because everyone sort of has different dates, all these sources.
1: I mean, yeah, there's, it's tricky.
0: Yeah, it's tricky because I think there is overlap between the two strips, but also, Torching Heartbeats end in 1954. And I just said Patty Joe runs for 11 years. And so it would theoretically end in 1956, which means. But that's wrong. So (laughs) I mean,
1: it's possible that she stopped drawing it, but they they kept it in syndication.
0: But it's stuff like this. It's honestly stuff like this. I mean, this is why we're trying to build this podcast, right? We're trying to talk about this history because some of it. You want it to be clear, but it's not always clear. And that's just what life is. Yeah, I have a few things before we start talking about Torchy and Heartbeats. Yeah. So, Comic Sparrow laughs at this time period. Jackie Orms was also doing a lot of commercial art at this time. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's really, usually commercial artists didn't sign their work. Right? And we've talked about this before with the idea of authorship. It really only started in comics in about the 60s. So she was creating all this work when authorship of who made what wasn't necessarily as important as the final product. Right, right. So 1947 is the only signed piece of commercial art, was is dated 1947 for her. And we could talk about uh, the loss of her comics and uh, the loss of her work. Mhm. If you want to, especially when we're trying to date her, her these strips,
1: right? Like Yeah, I th- I think Goldstein brings up that the only there's no like surviving archives of candy except microfilm. There's no like hard copies anymore of it. Um but it is yeah, it's they're really hard to find. <laughs> like and I think I mean I think this is the interesting thing about comics as a medium is that like only a couple of people who were deemed like important their stuff got preserved
0: yeah and then she says herself she didn't save a lot of her original artwork yeah because she said when you are in it it just seems like it would be endless yeah right so (laughs) like why would you save it if you're just going to draw another one tomorrow
1: yeah and the idea of collecting was not a thing
0: yeah that's another thing that happened in the 60s too yeah comics so also at this time 1948 to 1958 is when the fbi investigates jackie or yes so it was over a period of 10 years so this is the red scare right um so in the late 1930s and early 40s some of chicago's black community had turned to radical politics and the communist party Mm -hmm. believing that promised a fairer alternative to capitalism um it offered a solution to race and class oppression um that is from goldstein So, yeah. So it does her FBI investigation. So the FBI was was created in 1935, Mm -hmm. which is exactly when the black community in Chicago started to get investigated for radical politics and possible communism. Right. Mm. And then so what would become this is from Wikipedia, (laughs) what would become um, known as the McCarthy area began before McCarthy's term in 1953. Following the first Red Scare, President Truman signed in 1947 an executive order to screen federal employees for association with organizations deemed totalitarian, fascist, communist, or subversive, or advocating to alter the form of government of the United States by unconstitutional means. Mm -hmm. And Orms also actually attended some Communist Party events, possibly because the objectives of the Communist Party overlapped with other reform movements such as civil rights and economic opportunity which we already know orms cared about and honestly she was also a reporter yeah she probably just went to stuff a lot yeah right so this is um truman started this in 1947 and her investigation starts in 1948 right so the fbi is already on her case because she is a public
1: figure yes she works for newspapers they so they interviewed her for 10 years she's she in her file she says that she's not affiliated with the communist party I do like this quote from Goldstein, which is Hoover's list of potential subversives put Orms in excellent company. Her complete dossier stands at 287 pages, passing baseball star Jackie Robinson's at 131 page brief, but is considerably outstripped by Eleanor Roosevelt's 3,371 page FBI file.
0: We didn't talk about it, but Orms
1: loved Eleanor Roosevelt. She (laughs) wrote about her all the time. (laughs) Yeah. But that's the thing is that it's like 287 pages, 10 years of interviews uh, because she was doing like political work <laughs> like, for the black community.
0: And, yeah. I mean, who cares if you're communist or not? I mean, honestly, yeah. I mean, this is this is something that was happening. I mean, it's like really violent. I mean, it's easy to laugh about, but it was really violent to the black community. It was, yeah. Um, and like civil rights. So that's the ten-year period. But so I have ton of stuff that was actually also happening in this ten-year period while she was getting investigated by the FBI. So in nineteen forty-nine, she acted in a few plays that were put on by the W.E.B. Du Bois Theater Guild. I just loved that she was also an actor and mm-hmm. a fashion model. Yes, right. Or she created work for fashion models because it's just, like, she was, like, really culturally engaged. Yes. In a very local way. hmm So, also, in the early 1950s, she started to compose a weekly cartoon. She did, so she, they, they did overlap. So, she was composing a weekly cartoon and the comic strip, which would be Patty Joe, and Ginger and Torchy and Heartbeats. hmm um, she was drawing paper dolls and organizing fundraising events, right? So she was organizing. I have a lot more of her organization that she does later on in the 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. But she was doing so much, just so much, like, cultural engagement. Yes. So also th- at this time, she starts Torchy and Heartbeats.
1: Tell me about Torchy and Heartbeats, E. Yeah. Torchy and Heartbeats was published in The Courier and a special eight-page comic insert. It was a revival of the Torchy character from uh, Torchy Brown and Dixie to Harlem, which we didn't really touch on, but uh, it's 12-month ending. Like, when it ended after 12 months, it was, like, very, very abrupt, which is why some people don't know if maybe she just had, like, a 12-month contract or, like, what the situation was. So this uh, this is information from the Meet Jackie Orms and Torchy Brown article in New York Amsterdam News. Um, they, the courier picked up in 1950, this eight page comic insert. They hired originally John Messman to write the dialogue, but the pair clashed. Mm. Orms ultimately won the battle is how Williams put it. So like, (laughs) like ultimately like got her way with how she wanted the dialogue to be written. But I thought, I just thought that was really fascinating that they tried to hire like a dude to write the strip for her. And she was like, no, what's it about? Right. So Torchy Brown in Heart, Torchy Brown Heartbeats or Torchy in Heartbeats, as it later became known, was like a romance. (laughs) It was about Torchy. It says like the character Torchy pursues adventure and romance and occasionally strikes pinup poses that capture the reader's attention. So this this version of Torchy was it was not the same as Torchy and Dixie to Harlem, where she's trying to be a celebrity. This one is about is more like a romance action story about her. She's like doing these these like adventures. She's a love struck rescuer of a young man in distress who was a musical genius. It's about her and her boyfriends, basically mm-hmm. and it's It's very colorful. It's a little more, like, fantastic. It's a little more, like, romance-heavy. But interestingly, and she does this a little bit in uh, Torchy Brown and Dixie to Harlem, too, but especially in Torchy Brown and Heartbeats or Torchy and Heartbeats, it deals a lot with environmental racism. Right. And there's a lot written... Like, I have a a kind of dense academic essay, um, The Aesthetics of Environmental Equity in American Newspaper Strips by Veronica Volt, uh, which sort of analyzes the like environmental justice so basically it has
0: a lot to do with um where black communities are being built mm-hmm. black neighborhoods are being built and it has to do with where pollution is happening in a city right
1: yeah yeah so this art this essay the veronica uh, Vold. Essay talks about the relationship between the time that like Torchy and Heartbeats was made and the uh, issues of environmental racism that were happening, which was um, to quote um, the EPA and its host of environmental regulations did not exist when Jackie Orms inked Torchy and Heartbeats to paper from 1950 to 1954. As Nancy Goldstein argues, Orms would have been aware of struggles against garbage incinerators and landfills happening in the 1950s in her own Chicago community. Many parts of the South Side were low-income neighborhoods whose residents were mostly people of color, and these neighborhoods were well-known as dumping grounds for the waste from more affluent communities and industry. Mm-hmm. Goldstein reasons that Orms was most likely inspired by one community action in particular. In 1953, citizens in South Side Chicago, where Orms lived, united to protest a defective landfill that released untreated runoff into swamps and lakes. So these were issues that she was tackling and in and Heartbeats. So uh, Vol goes on, while historians nod to the progressive themes that distinguish Torchy and Heartbeats as a noteworthy newspaper strip, no scholars have examined its formal achievements from an eco-critical perspective. So actually, this is this this sort of relates back to what we were talking about, how it's really hard to find reproductions of these. So Torchy originally appeared in the Pittsburgh Courier. Access to the strip is extremely limited, as only a few libraries in the United States hold archives of the supplement in which it appeared, and even these holdings are incomplete. Mm. Each of Orms's cartoon heroines is complex, self-assured, and resourceful, but Torchy Brown is exceptionally well-defined. Orms reflects that, quote, Torchy was no moonstruck crybaby and that she wouldn't perish between heartbeats. I never liked dreamy little women who couldn't hold their own <laughs> <laughs> in the final arc of Torchy and heartbeats. Torchy applies her talents to fighting the environmental racism of Colonel Fuller owner of the huge fuller chemical plant, which is slowly poisoning the entire community of the predominantly black town of Southville. Um, the strip in particular, this comes from is in July of 1953. So that was that's fictionalized, but it's a fictionalized version of the South Side of Chicago, yeah. right? Southville, yeah, Southville, South Side, and again, directly commenting on the 1953 protest, right of the. A defective landfill mm-hmm. um torchy at first doesn't see southville as an environmental risk uh and the word risk scape she's talking this author is working with the idea of uh, risk horizons um which basically refers to like how a character's perception of toxic risk as a risk so like their awareness of environmental pollution as a risk mm-hmm. so um torchy at first doesn't see southville as an environmental risk that will require her to negotiate life or death Having completed nursing training in the city for the purpose of assisting her boyfriend, Dr. Paul Hammond, in his new rural practice. So, again, working woman. Um, mm-hmm. Torchy spends the day of her arrival slowly walking through Southville's dusty streets, united with Paul in a shockingly run-down clinic and walking with him in the dark, cool woods on a house call. After her exploration of the woods in town, uh, Torchy learns that the Fuller Com- Chemical Company is poisoning the community. This, the June 1953 strips that contain the very moment of revelation are missing from the available archive. But by July, Torchy and Paul have returned from their walk to his ramshackle clinic. Gesturing to a shelf uh, a shelf of glass jars, bright red with blood samples, Paul explains his plan to isolate the toxins flowing from the nearby chemical plant into the bloodstreams of his black patients. This revelation, all previous strips in the storyline, including Torchy's walk along the town's dusty road and Paul Dorchy's stroll in the stillness of the cool woodland, are cast in toxic suspicion. The environment of Southville is reframed as a risk ape, as through the blood of its people. So, she, So just really like hitting that. Like the revelation, the narrative structure, like she, she, the the character finds out of this pollution of this, like toxicity, and it puts all of the stuff she's been doing in the town under new suspicion of exposed, like, oh, I've been exposed this whole time.
0: Um, before we get to 1954 when Torchy and Heartbeats ends, mm-hmm. I have a couple other things I wanted to touch on. So in 1947, Patty Joe and Jinder are still going on. So Patty Joe is like the five-year-old character from the strip. Mm-hmm. And so in 1947, uh, Orm's... Begins production on the Patty Joe doll. And so it's really in response to, I mean, all sorts of stuff, but it really is in response to equity, mm-hmm. right? So there's a lot of like white baby dolls. And there was a psychological study by psychologists, doctors Kenneth and Clark, that was done in the late 1930s, demonstrated the power of dolls as markers of self-identification this is from goldstein Mm -hmm. Uh, when black children were asked about the preference in dolls most responded that the white dolls were prettier or nicer and so i think that sort of talks about um how american education was uh teaching a Mm self-esteem and how toys were teaching low self-esteem in black children. And so Jackie Orms took it upon herself. She was making paper dolls up to this point as well, like you could cut out paper dolls. Um they also sold paper dolls yeah. over the mail. So that was sort of an extension of her fashion. Yeah. But she also started creating a physical baby doll known as the Patty Joe doll which had the most clothing available for a doll cuz there were black dolls but they weren't original right they were white dolls that were painted yeah. with a, a darker skin
1: tone right Yeah so she um she designs it and she she leads this effort she goes in she studies the doll market she designs this Patty Joe doll she sought advice from marketing insiders because originally I think she was planning on trying to produce it herself. Um, mm-hmm. but ends up approaching the Terry Lee Company, uh, which was a, ma- a manufacturer whose line of dolls uh, already included a black girl and a black boy along with their elaborate wardrobe. So there were uh, like other black, this company had black dolls that were a little bit like ahead of the other ones, but they weren't, mm-hmm. they still weren't made by a um black woman. And the thing that's really interesting about the doll is that she painted the the face some of the faces herself in order to train the factory artists like she trained them and painted them herself wow yeah
0: um chemist hasn't developed a way to dye plastic to have uh different skin tones so all the dolls had to be spray painted so i mean it's just interesting how technology also reinforces racism
1: right yeah
0: I wanted to point that out specifically because, I mean, she's talking about environmental racism. Um, She's directly addressing the racism of of the toy industry, Mm -hmm. um, which affects the psychology of growing black children. And so she was just going at politics and equity of her day from many different angles. She was just... A very talented, engaged person. So that the doll is 1947, Mm -hmm. and then 1951. Um, She created a Patty Joe and Ginger cartoon that referenced the FBI hounding the character of another black cartoonist at the time who was also having his own FBI troubles. So black cartoonists were um, creating work about each other and supporting each other during these McCarthyism era. As E had said, Torchy in Heartbeats ends in 1954. Also in the 50s, the civil rights struggle of the 1950s brought expanded opportunities for black journalists And news coverage in the mainstream began to be better represent uh, African Americans' interests. And many readers turned to those daily newspapers rather than the weekly newspapers. So the black press, their popularity started to wane Mm -hmm. in this era. And also television, as, we, as we've mentioned before, um, television in the 50s also starts to take away readers' attention. Um, so Torture and your Heartbeats ends in 1954. Jackie Orms is quoted as saying it was strictly a man's world <laughs> as to why it ended. I think also, uh, E, you said uh, there were a lot of action strips. So the comic section kept going but they didn't continue on with Torchy and Heartbeats and they had more action strips right
1: yeah um so in I have this book uh Children of the Yellow Kid the evolution of the American comic strip by Robert C. Harvey um which address Orms or I think any black cartoonist at all but it does talk about the different eras and The chapter on the 1950s, like, onward, actually starts talking about uh, how syndicated cartoons, you know, they weren't political. uh, But during this time period, you get Little Abner, you get, you get Doonesbury, you get, like, all these more political strips, actually. (laughs) So, like, Orms was doing all this great political work. And then as her career, as she sort of, like, moves away from cartooning, other cartoonists start, white cartoonists, rather, catch up and start making mm-hmm. like pogo deals a lot with environmental racism and that started in the 40s um it just it's like a very interesting like shift right mm-hmm. but to quote goldstein by
0: the time orms puts down her cartoonist pencil for good she earned prestige admiration and celebrity status mm-hmm. and she really uses this um status that she's gained for political engagement so 1954 is um, when the Supreme Court rules on Brown versus the Board of Education, um, which unanimously agreeing that segregation in public schools is unconstitutional. And Thurgood Marshall, who we mentioned before, um, had a large part in this ruling. To move on, 1955 is when Emmett Till is murdered. Martin Luther King Jr. is instrumental in leading the Montgomery bus boycott. So this is also Mm -hmm. when Rosa Parks uh, refused to move to the back of the bus. Um, So when Jackie Orms Quits um, during this time, the civil rights era, the beginning, of, like the really ramping up of the civil rights era. Nu- newspapers still had black people absent, mm-hmm. um, maybe not in the news articles per se, but in the cartoons. So uh, this is from Goldstein. Just as offensive as the use of ethnic stereotypes in cartoons was near absence of realistic black people as characters. Novelist John Updike noted that for decades, even the New Yorker magazine failed to use include black characters in his usually hip and socially aware cartoons. Of the New Yorker era from 1955 to 1964, he commented, the foremost domestic issue of the time was the struggle of the black minority for civil rights, yet people of color were almost totally absent from these cartoons. Fortunately, newspapers seemed to be more responsive than sophisticated magazines were to the issues of inclusion. As the civil rights struggles of the 1950s raised the consciousness and changed the laws of the nation, newspapers to comics, both in the mainstream and the black press, changed as well. A few black artists began cartooning for the dailies by the 19- mid 1960s and brought their realistic black characters along with them, like Maury Turner in Wee Pals and Brumzik Brandon Jr. in Luther. Mm-hmm. Established comic artists, including Charles Schultz, introduced brown-skinned characters such as Franklin, who began to appear in the Schultz's peanut strip. As ads for hair straighteners and skin lighteners began to disappear from black newspapers in the middle of the 1950s, more characters in their comics were increasingly depicted as attractive, intelligent, sophisticated, and capable, just as all of Orms’s characters had been two decades earlier. So in 1957, Orms is really engaged in grassroots political work in the early 1960s. She becomes a member of multiple um, chambers of commerce in Chicago. At the same time, the uh, lunch counter boycotts are happening in America. Mm-hmm. Um, so she becomes, she joins like multiple board of direct- directors um, in, in Chicago. Um, so she becomes a board director in 1962 for the Clarence Darrell Community Center, a facility that provided recreation, education, and counseling for residents of Chicago's housing projects um, and the surrounding area. In 1962 alone, the center served over 25,000 black people and children. Yeah. 1963 is when there was the March on Washington and Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. And then she, so she stops cartooning. The mainstream starts to pick up what she had been doing two decades earlier. Yeah. And she does really strong political work. Yeah. She helps found... I got like so many, so much stuff. She supports the Disabled um, Museum of African American History in the 1970s and 1969. She helps initiate the Joseph Jefferson fellowship awards for participants in the Chicago area theater. In 1971 she coordinates the Midwest Artists for Peace which protests the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. So while she doesn't, she stops drawing she is politically engaged. Yeah. I think that's a trajectory that a lot of Current cartoonists can feel connection to, right? Where the politics of the day starts to take over her cartooning life. She also started to suffer from
1: arthritis Mm -hmm. in her hands, right? Yeah. Yeah, from the uh, weekly challenger article, Orms suffered from rheumatoid arthritis in her later years, which would eventually impact her ability to draw.
0: Mm. Was there anything you wanted to
1: say about these last few decades of her life? I do want to mention, I guess that the the Orms helped found, like you said, Orms helped found the Du Sable Museum of African American History, and it also houses her papers.
0: What are what do papers refer to?
1: Okay, so according to a citation note from the University of Chicago's Black Metropolis Research Consortium. The Jackie Orms papers are arranged into four series. Art and Writings, from 1938 to 1958. Correspondence, 1947 to 1985. Patty Jo Doll, circa 1947. And Personal, 1945 to 1985. Oh,
0: that's wonderful.
1: Yeah, so it has 0.5 linear feet.
0: Tiny little stack. stack. (laughs) Yeah. Six inches. So um Jackie Orms passes away in 1985. Yes. In 1984 she went and visited a like doll group that collects dolls and she was like a celebrity to them. The <laughs> Goldstein talks about this. Goldstein actually herself is a doll historian, right? She's like a toy historian and that's how she got interested in Jackie Orms. Yeah. Is there anything else? Q&A with University
1: Michigan Press. She says that, yes, (laughs) that she. Oh, what does she say? She says, um, someone said, so how did you talk a bit about why and how you came to write this book? Um, You have a longstanding interest in dolls, right? And Nancy Goldstein says, yes, I came to write this book through my interest in dolls. I'm a doll collector and have written about doll history. Um, There are a couple of doll history books that have information about the Patty Joel doll. So she was curious to learn more about the doll basically
0: thank you thank you very much nancy goldstein following the
1: truth yeah oh i do want i so before shortly before her death she does an interview with david jackson for the chicago um reader the amazing adventures of jackie orms it's like very hard to find this find this (laughs) um the reader has some of their 85 editions archived but not the month that this was in which was august of 85 this is just sort of a general call but if anyone knows how to get their hands on a copy of this article and you want to like send it to us (laughs) i would really appreciate it because it seems very interesting
0: and again, Nancy Goldstein references this interview like a lot. Yeah, and a lot of book. a
1: lot of the writing, like a lot of them, have referenced it. So there must be an archive of it somewhere that I just don't have access to, or was unable to find. But
0: yeah, are there any um,
1: closing remarks you want to make? It, it felt important to me to talk about Orms. I this is actually Orms was one of the the topics that uh, I suggested like when we first started this podcast. <laughs> Uh, So she's she's been on our list for a while, and I I think the like with her having just been inducted into the Hall of Fame in July, the Eisner Hall of Fame. Well, the Eisner Hall of Fame in July. I think there's maybe going to be a renewed interest. Hopefully in work like learn like researching her work and like put placing her back into the broader context of strip history because in most of the academic writing and historical writing on like comic strips and like the history of comic strips um i mean there's very little attention paid to non-white cartoonists generally but like Especially, her, like, she's basically completely omitted from the historical record. I I, I mean, I, I, some of her, like, the her uh, black male contemporaries get acknowledged, but she doesn't. Yeah, like, the Ignatz
0: Awards is named after a Crazy Cat character. Yes, yeah, I mean, although Harriman's sort of
1: a interesting figure.
0: <laughs> um, no, I mean, I think he is an interesting figure because he never actually says that he's a black mm-hmm. cartoonist, yeah. right? He never says he's an African-American cartoonist. I mean... I don't think that's something to ignore oh, yeah. because I think um, Jackie Orms was very, very much part of the black community. Yeah, exactly. Very much her entire life.
1: Yeah. And I guess what I'm saying is there's not in the context of like historical writing and ac- academic writing that's more mainstream, there's really not attention given to like the black press and how the black press interacted with cartoons and like used strips. Um, And it's she's so important as a figure historically. Yeah. That, I, that I, I hope to see her get more, like, I hope to see people w- place more emphasis on her and, like, talking about history again. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I agree wholeheartedly. Thank you so much for bringing this topic to me and scanning this book for me because it's hard to find. <laughs> yeah. No. It- <laughs> Unfortunately. So
1: thank you so much. E. Yeah, thank you.
0: It's, it was awesome doing this with you. Yeah,
1: thank you for uh, your timeline and your structure.
0: <laughs> oh, thank you. I'm. I mean, any any opportunity to do research on civil rights and especially Brown versus board of education and the rights of black children yes. growing up is very interesting to me. It's very pertinent. Yes. Yes. Um, so uh, our next segment is letters to the editor, where we talk about any previous topics um, and sources that we want to bring back into drawing a dialogue, or we talk about emails and correspondence that we've gotten. Um, hey, E, do you have anything for letters to the editor this month?
1: Yeah. Um. So we could talk about the Ignatz just happened. Uh. Recently, I would love to. Yeah.
0: Um. So the Ignatz Awards is an uh, annual awards uh, given out at Small Press Expo. Mm-hmm. Uh. This was like a just a really wonderful celebration. Were you in attendance of at the awards, or were I was I was in the audience? You're gonna put me on blast. I was not in the. Audience. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not on Blast. I was just wondering if you had seen it. I mean, it was really wonderful. I mean, it was really like a celebration. There were a lot of uh, people of color were awarded. Um, A lot of queer people. Yes. Um, Trans people were awarded. It just was like a really beautiful celebration. And also what's happening right now is the Defend the Eleven. Yes. I'm not going to get into the specifics. You can look them up yourself. But... Just, like, a lot of camaraderie um, happening in the independent cartoonist world right now that um, I just feel um, really strongly about the solidarity um, that's happening. So please, like, look up Defend the Eleven. Please consider donating. It's really important, and it's, like, a really fantastic thing that's happening right now.
1: Yeah, I I agree. And it was a really this was a really good Ignatz.
0: <laughs> it was a really good Ignatz and it was a really good small press yeah. expo. I, I, There was so much, such a sense of brotherhood and sisterhood and yeah. like siblinghood. siblinghood. Yeah, there was such a
1: sense. <laughs> yeah, it, it felt very like uh, empowering. It was very empowering and supportive.
0: Yeah. And I sort of, I want to really encourage anyone listening to this, even if you aren't listening to it, if you're listening to this like months later after we record it, I really want you to consider how you can engage with this solidarity
1: that's happening right now. Yeah. Um we, we live we aren't working by ourselves, you know? We we live in such a um I mean everyone always lives in such a fraught time, but especially I feel like lately and we gotta be each other's guards. Absolutely. You know, we have yeah. to so just finding ways you can like support each other uplift each other work with each other <laughs> um and that's what jackie orms would want yes that's what she does yes absolutely
0: absolutely so that concludes letter to the editor um <laughs> i want to say thanks to downtown boys for their song wave of history it's off their album full communism you can get it off their band camp go listen full communism I haven't mentioned this on this program, but I wanted I pitched this song to E mostly because then I could say full communism every episode. <laughs> um, hear that, McCarthy? Well.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then you can get uh, notes off this episode at drawingadialogue.com. You can get all sorts of citation sources. Please look up our sources. Uh, we love yes. it. Yes.
1: And yeah, and you can always email us at uh, dialogue at gmail.com. You can send us further reading. You can ask us questions or have comments. We love to talk with y'all. This is a dialogue. Oh, yeah. You can uh, add us on Twitter at dialogue. You can add me on Twitter at E-H-E-T-J-A, E-H-E-T-J-A.
0: And you can add me at Kathy G. John, C-A-T-H-Y-G-J-O-H-N. Yeah. So what are you reading, E?
1: Oh, a lot. Um so mostly I'm reading <laughs> mostly I'm reading for seminars right now, right? Um of course you're a PhD student. Yeah, so uh, I j- just finished Discipline and Punish. Um we read I read um Grewal, Inderpal Grewal's Home in a Harem, which I think is really interesting. Um trans it's transnational feminism, which is a field Um, That is sort of meant to basically instead of feminism being like a hegemonic white American force, it's like looking at like different feminisms and different localities and colonialism and how that impacted these things. And it's very interesting. It's about like uh, travel and how imperialism, English imperialism sort of like created gender in India. But I also wanted to say I went to this really wonderful talk a couple weeks ago by Dr. Ebony Elizabeth Thomas on uh racism representation and resistance in children's literature mm. so she is at the at University of Pennsylvania and um she works with how Uh, race is represented in children's books and particularly like slave narratives um, and how that impacts Mm. children Um, and she actually does this project where she sends like she has her and her assistants go into schools and they do a book club and then they ask students questions about the books And, like, is, like, working on, like, a database of, like, different issues of representation. And it's just, like, working with, like, this field that, like, literature about slavery.
0: This isn't actually the words of people who are enslaved. This is people writing fictionalized accounts. Yes, this is fictionalized accounts.
1: Yeah, like, so, for instance, in the talk, she talked about the, um, what was that book where they made a cake for george washington
0: uh yeah george washington george, so like
1: yeah like she talks socially so like she talks about like these books these fictionalized narratives um and like the both visual like picture books and also like prose books and like how they impact children basically which is very interesting so i i would highly recommend looking into her research and i'll put a link to her in the
0: notes awesome see this would have been great for the letters to the editor section <laughs>
1: Well, <laughs> <laughs> all right. I didn't think about um, that.
0: So, Kathy, what are you reading? I'm reading another J.G. Ballard book. I read High Rise um, a few months ago. I talked about it on this podcast. Um, now I'm reading Concrete Island. I like it. It's sort of like Camus, sort of has like a surrealist element. It's like what I wanted Camus to be. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Yeah. Thank you so much, E, and thank you. Very much for listening. Thank you. We'll see you next time on Rodney's Bye. Thanks to our oh, intrepid volunteers. volunteers.